Teppo Newmanen, he was a big favorite. Uh, Yerky Yoki Paka. Oh, my God, oh, what a great a name one. that was. Yeah, I like that one. And then all of a sudden, Buffalo drafted this guy like six years ago. It was like Uka Pekalukanen, my favorite. And now he's with Buffalo. If um, if you didn't see the meme, Buffalo put it up. It said three things that are hard to say. It's a big billboard in Buffalo. Yeah. It said, I'm sorry. I need help. Uka Pekalukanen. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what a That's great awesome. city that is. That is a fantastic city. You got to hand it to Buffalo. They have a sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's awesome. Do. Great fan base. I mean, no. I'm a Dolphins so, fan, so I'm going to stay away from this one. So. Go back to the Aqua Teal jerseys, man, and keep them. The, the five stripes. Oh, 100%. I'm a, 100%. Stripes and sleeves, baby. Yep. And absolutely. stirrups and baseball. I'm on good. They need to do it. <clears throat> What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Stack and Stubs, presented by Ticket Board. My name's Kurt, alongside John and Bill, and tonight we have a very special guest on our podcast, Mr. George Falkowski. I would love to introduce you formally, but I feel like you okay. have a laundry list of titles, so I can probably go on and use up this entire podcast. So I will say you are an author of a very good book, Meet Me at the Bat, and I will Thank leave you. the rest up to you if you want to talk about some of your other accomplishments. Uh, well, you know, I'm not a, a, a super braggy guy, but I'll, I'll, I'll toot my horn a little bit. Uh, most of my career has been spent in media, sports media. Uh, I did graduate college in New Jersey at Kane College at the time, which is where one of the places where I teach now. I uh, did graduate school in Boston. And wouldn't you know that I hooked up and ended up as a Yankee fan from New Jersey working 10 years for the Red Sox and New England Sports Network. And I was what they call an associate producer, field producer up there. Uh, my job there with the Red Sox and Bruins was to do the interviews, write the story, edit the story, and then like hand the script to somebody named Steve, and he would read my words, and the boss would go, great story, Steve. Here's five <laughs> times more money than George gets. <laughs> and shockingly, 10 years, I left. Now, I love Bo I still love Boston. It, I can't believe I ever left. But I was never going to get on the air, and I got tired of being somebody else's you know, water carrier. And the very long story short is I got back to old sports channel, which is now like MSG plus uh, in time for the first devil Stanley cup in 95. That was awesome. And then uh, when I left there, I wound up at fledgling news 12, New Jersey. And um, I had only been on the air three times at sports channel. Okay. When they called to interview me and one of my favorite stories about fake it till you make it is the news director calls me. He says, well, we're starting up in March and I like your tape. And I'm like, well, that's good. And he says, we're looking for a sports anchor reporter. Can you anchor? And I said, yes, I can anchor. Had <laughs> he asked me, have you anchored? That would have been a different answer. But he didn't. <laughs> and apparently I could. And uh, I had a real good run there, 18 years. Uh, as long as we're tooting the horn, I got four Emmy Awards, which is awesome. I got tomorrow, a bunch of AP stuff. And it was great because that's what I always thought I would be. Uh, you know, I wanted to do that. And I didn't take the traditional route. I didn't have a father in the business or a mother in the business. I'm not Jack Buck's son or Will McDonough's son, you know, um, and those guys are great. Don't get me wrong. But in, in media, if you'll pardon the colorful expression, there's something called the lucky sperm club. And if your dad is somebody big, like right now, the up and coming NFL guy is Ian Eagles kid. Yeah. And if his name was Ian Schwartz yep. from Brooklyn, he would be. No. 
again, he's been raised right, so he's really good. So cool. I was there 18 years, got laid off right before the holidays in 2013. Not bitter. Um, <laughs> tried real estate, sucked at it. Uh, got back into TV part-time with a show called Chasing News uh, here in the New York area, in New York and Philly, New Jersey. Uh, that lasted two and a half years part-time until the show folded right, right when COVID hit. And now it's, you know, I do real estate videos like news stories, uh, like the good works that these realtors do for people when they do charity work or golf tournaments for charity. And I teach. I teach media. I teach speech. I teach public speaking. Um, just in the past year, Kane University, Montclair State, Seton Hall. Uh, so it's the gig life. And during some of that downtime, two summers ago, I started writing the book because friends were pestering me for a long time. Write a book, write a book. And I'm like, what am I going to write? Oh, I went to the Stanley Cup finals in 2003. I mean, yeah, okay, your friends care, but who cares? And when we were moving, I found a big stuffed envelope, the kind with that gray stuff in it. When you open it up, it kind of gets in your hair and goes in your lungs. And, and <laughs> all the stuff my mom threw out when I moved out, she did not throw out my ticket stubs. And I had everything. Devils, Nets, Rangers, Rutgers, Giants, Jets, obviously Yankees. And Yankees was a big thing growing up. I would do anything to go to a Yankee game. And we got on the Sunday plan in the 80s. That was awesome. And I began to put the stubs on Facebook like, huh, I remember this story. It was a really bad date. Or, oh, this was the game where my car wouldn't start after they lost to the Royals in the playoffs. And my dad had to come get me at 1230 in the morning in the Bronx. And I'm like, stop. That's the book. Yep. So as I'm sure you know, I, I, I turned it into 32 short stories based on the ticket stubs of specific games that I had vivid memories of, and most importantly, I think, and this is the cool part, the people I was with, the people you spent. And that's what baseball is, right? It's the people you went to the games with. When your dad took, your grandpa took, your mom took you, you went with your, your sister, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever. Those are the stories. And there were some pretty zany things that happened, which I tried to you know, put into the book. And then, um, as you guys probably know, I updated the epilogue just this, this uh, winter because of some of the reactions I got including yeah. from one of the fathers of a girl I dated 44 years ago who did not know what happened after the playoff game. That story. But he found out. My heart was racing during that story, like wondering True how story. you were going to get out of that man. one. That was, I got to tell you, your book was awesome. I couldn't put it down. And I'm. Wow, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm a big Yankees fan, but I'm more, so I'm going to be 40. So my Yankee oh, fandom started like, yeah, well, I'm, 40's not fun, I don't think yet. But um, started 30, like. Baby, you're good. Well, I appreciate that. So 91-ish was when I first started watching in my grandma's TV in her living room because she was a Yankees fan. So it was like... That was the equivalent of my 1971 when the team sucked. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it was terrible. But we had Don Mattingly, so that was great. And then I really started to remember... I had Bobby Mercer. Okay. I remember you said that was your favorite player. Um, Yep. So it was more like Danny Tartable. That was when I really started to remember it. So just hearing those stories from like Reggie Jackson and Nettles and Lou Pinella and everybody. It's people that I never got to watch. It's funny. You mentioned Munson. My birthday's on August 2nd. So like wow. here in the August 2nd stuff, like four years after he had passed and then saying, you know, kids these days when you're in the ballpark had never got to see him play. So it was just yeah, ironically. Watching, so um, that's chapter 15 and that wasn't planned. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. It just happened to work out that way. And um, you know, the store, the stories are mostly, I try to make them funny and lighthearted and sentimental and sweet and maybe get a little tear going. But the Munson chapter was really hard to write because it was about going to the game right after he was killed in the plane crash. Not yeah. the game that everybody sees on. Yes. With Bobby Mercer hitting the home run, the double, that right. was Monday. 
Okay, right. that was the fourth game of the series. This was the first game. This was Friday night, August 3rd. And it was, like I wrote, it was like going to a wake. It really was. Yeah. And you didn't know how to react. And everybody with eyes were watered. And, and there was a rain delay. This mist was coming down. Eddie Layton's playing like this really somber music on the organ. And, you know, so I rounded up my girlfriend and her two, her two brothers, her twin brothers, and, and we went. And um, if you got into it, I could give a little little stuff away. I don't know. A lot of people are into numbers and numerology. Um, when they, they lost the game one nothing, Luis Tion pitched that night uh, for the Yankees. And people forget he was the Yankee, the great Red Sox pitcher. And they lost one nothing. And when they lost, they fell 15 games out of first place, which was, you know, there's the number. Yeah. But when I got home the next day and picked up the star ledger, the attendance was 51151. Yeah, that's crazy. Mind blowing. Yeah. Yep. Mind blowing. <clears throat> and the story's really about me, you know, going back to Yankee Stadium on the anniversary of, of his death at 2021 and going and expecting. One thing, and if you guys ever dabble in journalism or storytelling, a lot of times you go into a story thinking it's going to go a certain way and you got it written in your head and you're going to do this. And all I can say, the exact opposite happened. And you know, the reaction that I had and, and the fans and the way it was that night. And you know what? I think that made it a better story. Because if it had gone the way I figured, everybody go, oh, okay, we saw that coming. But it didn't. The atmosphere and everything that happened that night was completely different than what I expected. And so what I decided to do was not finish the story until I attended that game on that night because it was the anniversary. Right. So the prequel of the chapter is me going to the game. The bulk of the story is what it was like in 1979 when we found out that he was killed and we went to the game and what it was like. And then it ends with me at the end of that game in 2021 and what I was feeling when it was over. So that it, 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 the story almost wrote itself, which was kind of cool. So it was hard, but it, I think it was a good chapter. A lot of people have commented on it. Yeah, it was. It was a very good chapter, and I was thinking that as I was reading it. Like, yeah, I never got to see him play, and I, I pulled up some highlights of, you know, some of the, the big home runs. That Look he hit up, and ready? If you, your, your listeners, it's on YouTube. It was the home run he hit against the Royals in the playoffs in 78. Yeah, on uh, Death I, Valley, I right? A, a chapter on that in the book. It was October 6, 1970. It was my 18th birthday. Yep. And uh, Reggie Homer, George Brett hit three in that game against Catfish. And Munson hit this home run. Uh, and if you see the replay, and if you get the Yankee, that there's an ABC version and there's a Yankee version, and you got to hear Bill White and Phil Rizzuto on the call of that home run. It is fabulous. Awesome. Yeah. That. I think that, that, that story right there kind of speaks to how baseball – more than any other sport has this <clears throat> magic to it when it comes to the history of the game, you know, and, and the, the history just will, it keeps following the game itself. And you can almost in any situation, it doesn't matter where you're at. You can feel how that history comes back. And I think this story is a prime example of that, you know, 1979 to 2021, I think is when you went back to it. Right. Yep. You know, and it's almost like you can feel, that history because the game was different. The atmosphere was different. It just, it just, it, it's so it's, it's like an unlike anything else in, in any other sport, how all of those memories can come back. And I think that's, that's an amazing story that you just brought up. Well, I'll tell you what's frustrating in a lot of ways is 
there's an entire generation of fans, and I think I mentioned this when I wrote it, is that to them, Thurman Munson is just another dead Yankee. Yep. He's Babe Ruth or, or Lou Gehrig or Joe DiMaggio. And he's just some guy whose number's out in the outfield. And, and they didn't see it. They didn't experience this guy. They didn't see what a, what a leader, what a bulldog he was and how he played hurt. I mean, if you ever see highlights of the 78 World Series against the Dodgers, his shoulder was so bad he was almost throwing underhanded and he was still throwing guys out at second base. Wow. It's incredible. And, and I mean, a perfect example is I went to a game, I don't know, four or five years ago, my friend Charlie, who's uh, mentioned several times in the book, uh, he gets tickets to like a midweek game in like June, July. And so I drive out and I had just gotten the orange Reggie bar t-shirt. And there's a chapter dedicated to the Reggie bar game and the, and the delay of the game on opening yep. day. So it's an orange shirt like the wrapper was orange. It's got the Reggie Bar wrapper. It's got him, you know, the home run swing in the World Series, and people people didn't know what it was. <laughs> and, and you know, what, honestly, I'm, like, I'm not sure what? I would. I'm not sure I would have known what it was. Well, well, and now From, the Reggie Bar's coming back. In I fact, know, I happen yeah. to know that they are filming a recreation of the event where the people showered the field with Reggie Bars. That's awesome. They're yeah. supposedly recreating that down in Florida to relaunch the brand. Sometime cool. in the next month. So keep your eyes out for that. For sure. Well, and that's that's what it is. These guys are just ten minute any bar delay on opening day. That's what happens. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I will say, I mean, um, I think the whole point of us wanting to start an app, you know, as we talked about it for, for years, is the whole nostalgic vibe and the ability to collect these tickets. And when you look at that ticket stub, it really brings you back to that <laughs> moment in time. Yeah. And as kids, when we would get these paper stubs, we were really, really enthralled with the concept of saving our ticket stubs and oh, we all were. just being able to go back and do that. And I think once we discovered you and we saw your social media and, and found out about the book, it was like, wow, we really need to talk to him and get him on the show because this is exactly <laughs> what we are setting out to do. But we want to allow the, the younger generation the same concept because now everything is digital. You have a digital stub. And you're not getting those paper tickets. But once you scan and that stub at the gate, it's gone. Like you don't get to save it. it. And you know, now what we're trying to do is just give people the ability to still save those in a digital way. And hopefully, you know, years from now, someone will be able to look back in their phone and pull up some stubs and be able to tell their grandkids about some stories that or, they saw today. And, or print them out. Right. You know, as best you can. And yeah, you know, I, I'll yeah. tell you what happened is somebody reached out to me uh, via collectors group and offered me a lot of money for those ticket stubs, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, oh, I could go up my ticket stubs. Can't do that. There are my ticket stubs. And then I realized I had three, you know, sandwich bags with ticket stubs in them. And if I died the next day, you know the deal. You know, Mrs. F, who's nearby, would open the desk and go, what's this? And it's gone. <laughs> so I'm like, these tickets are now going to fund my next two summers of baseball going. Yep. You know, whether it's nice. the Boston or Philly or or the minor league parks. And so I sold a whole bunch of them, but I kept enough sentimental ones. And as I we, you were talking before we started that I actually had a full ticket from 1978 and I took it to Staples and had it blown up to like four by 14 and had it mounted on poster board, put Velcro on it. And now it's a wall decoration. And to me, I'm looking at it like right now. And there it is. Yankee Stadium. New York Yankees upper reserve, uh, believe it or not, uh, estimated price $4.63 state, city tax $0.37, cents, $5. That's fantastic. 
We what now it's a $44 seat. And it says day 72. And it even has Cedric Tallis's autograph on the bottom, who was the GM that year. And it was phenomenal. And, and then the old days, look, I'm old now. The old days of the stadium, we used to get this like map of the Yankee Stadium seating, and all the tickets were color coded. Okay. So like upper upper deck okay. was gray, and then there was red. And if you got the white tickets, that was field level box. That was when you hit the jackpot. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were sitting main level box, which was the next section back, okay, those tickets were yellow. All right, the reserve seats were kind of a pink. The mezzanine, I think, was some type of another type of uh, yellow, a different shade of yellow. So you could tell just by the color where your seats were. It was that's how cool it was. And if you've seen the artwork that I've done with the book, where I put the ticket stubs all around the actual cover, mm -hmm. everyone's a different color, and every and everyone, you know what? Everybody, everyone tells a story. And you know, I self-published. I did have some publishers look at it; they liked it, but they were like, "Oh, you know." not the time for a sports book. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm over 60. It's the time. So I self-published <laughs> and my original idea was to use the stub for each game to start each chapter, mm -hmm. but that was going to cost way too much. You know, okay. I, they were, they were going to give me like 20, 22 pictures with, with the deal, not 40. Yep. So some chapters have the ticket stub. Mm -hmm. the, one, my, one of my favorite photos in the book, if you saw it was me on, on what was the scheduled opening day in 1982. And uh, let's just let's just say Mother Nature didn't cooperate and we had a blizzard on April 6th. And the picture is of me standing in front of my car in my Yankee road jersey, in my boots, in 18 inches of snow, holding up my four tickets. Yeah, that was awesome. And then you had to go on Easter Sunday, right? Afterwards. So snow that's a day is what I called it that year. Yeah, that was great. That was great. So, so but that's why I love the stubs. And that's where people need to look at these things. They are absolute works of art. And we'll Each never have them like that again. Story. Each one is a story. Yep. And that's what makes them so special. And and if, if, if the people who haven't grown up with actual physical ticket stubs can figure it out and even ask at the ball game, I think the Phillies will print it out for you for a small fee if you yep. can go to the ticket office. Having the actual ticket in your hand, I mean, I, get, I understand the security and the counterfeiting. I got it. I would rather have that ticket stub right in my hand. Cause it means something. It, it means something more, I think. So they're an actual moment in time. You know, they're, they're proof that you were part of that single moment of time. Yep. Pine tar game. I had a yes. guy offer me to buy that one too. If it wasn't taped in the scorecard, I could have got 500 bucks for it. Wow. <laughs> I, I will say though, it's actually kind of crazy to me that other people are interested in spending that much money for an event that they haven't gone to. Like I've, I was looking at maybe getting some, some old Super Bowl tickets just for us to have, like that we can maybe hang sure. in the office or whatnot. And I mean, if you look on eBay, like Super Bowl two and three, those tickets are selling for you know one two thousand dollars, and it's well, their history. Yeah, yep. yeah. You know, like I mean, you said, it's not, not just a moment in time, but a lot of times. And I didn't even realize that the Pine Tar game was one of the most desirable stubs out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because of the, the 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 historical significance of the game, where Brett was thrown out with an illegal bat, and they reversed it, and yada yada yada. I was there, man. That story's in the book, too. So um, guy was offered me a wasn't a ton of money, but it was it wasn't six hundred bucks or five hundred bucks. But he goes, how's this? And I'm like, we'll drive it to your house. <laughs> you know, I made sure I took a picture of it. So I've got it. You know, yeah, I've got it right. preserved in my phone. I could print it if I want it. Um, but the, 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 the three friends I was there with, we still around. Around that day, every July, July 24th, we're like sending emails. Hey, it's Pine Tar Day, Pine Tar Day. And <laughs> That's it's amazing. Gonna be, it's it's going to be 40 years this year. It's unbelievable. 
What were you? Uh, what was your most memorable moment? Like, what was your most memorable game? If you can pinpoint one in particular. Well, I think we, we already talked about it actually, and it it, it 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 was the Munson game. Okay. Because there was a, so much emotion, and yeah. you know, as I wrote in the book, you know, a lot of us, and you guys probably remember this too, unless you know, something tragic has happened in your younger years. A lot of times, the first time we deal with death is like a grandmother, grandfather, you know, and and we're not used to people our age. And so when you use a classmate, like I lost a couple of classmates in high school, that was pretty tough. But Munson, he he was like part of my family since I was nine. Like right. my first full year as a Yankee fan was 1970, his rookie season. So Munson was always there, and now he's dead. And you're at the game, and we're sitting in the upper deck behind first base, and uh, that ceremony is also on youtube i highly recommend you find it uh, if you can it was august 2nd 1970 august 3rd 79 and the fans applauded for nine minutes straight uh and i hadn't seen that video because i was at the game okay and then about three years ago i get up in the morning and i'm flipping around you know um at facebook and there's a guy i follow there and he puts the video of famous games and there's the ceremony and it's like 7.30 in the morning, everybody's asleep, and I'm downstairs in my cool room, and I'm crying watching this. Like 42 years later, I'm bawling watching it. And like I wrote in the book, like, how could you cry? You never even met the guy. True. Yep. All right? I met a lot of those guys later when I was working in Boston and News 12. But it's like part of your family's gone. And when I was there that night, as I describe in the book, I'm looking down at the dugout, and I'm waiting for Munson to come out and wave his cap and go, no, no, all a mistake. It was all a mistake. I'm here. And then at some point you realize he's not coming. And Louis Tiant's bowling on the mound and Reggie Jackson sobbing in right field. And the Orioles, which I thought was really cool, Mark Belanger, their famous shortstop, they didn't have black armbands for the Orioles, so he took black athletic tape and put it on everybody's left sleeve, the Orioles that night. It was just overwhelming. So yeah. as far as most memorable night at a ballpark, that was it. Uh, most fun game might have been my 18th birthday because I'd never been to a playoff game before. Like, dad was never going to take me to a play. He took me to a lot of games. He wouldn't go to a playoff game. And <laughs> I'm on my 18th birthday, and I'm there, and Reggie hits a homer, and Brett hits three, and Munson hits the bomb in the bottom of the eighth inning. And I'm like, it can't get any better. And then, of course, if you read the book, tickets showed up the next day, yep. and it got better. And then the story of the girl's dad contacting me 44 years after the fact to find out exactly what the hell happened that night. So it's pretty funny. Yeah. That story, <laughs> that story is great. That's 83 year old father sending me an email. I mean, that, <laughs> that's, that's crazy that you left that's that kind of an impression. Stories like that. Yeah. To leave an impression of that though. And then to have, for him to read that book and be like, Oh, that's my daughter. I remember, like, I know well, she got home late well, that she night. She bought it obviously. Right. And, right. And it, it's one of those things where I've been very close with the family uh, I graduated high school with her sister. Uh, one of her brothers worked in sports information at Rutgers for a long time. So when I was at News 12, we were always in contact. Um, and, you know, you want to get sentimental. Two years after we broke up, they asked me to be a pallbearer for their grandmother's funeral. That's how tight I was with the family. And to this day, still friends with the family. I've been able to keep a lot of friendships along. And that's been one of the really cool things of this book is these people reaching out. Yeah. And I got a... It's in the it's in the new epilogue. I got a card from my eighth grade English teacher in December, complimenting the book. That's awesome. I'm like, yeah. Mrs. Pecori, I haven't heard of her since I left high <laughs> school. And so, and then chapter 32 is like a Father's Day tribute 
and that was not part of the original printing. About three months after it was published, I found a season ticket stub in storage, yellow coupon, Yankees versus Orioles, 1975, Shea Stadium. And baseball part of that was important because it was me getting my first look at Bobby Bonds took over for Bobby Mercer, you know, and I wanted to see what he, if he was the deal, but the story is really about my best friend's dad who got us tickets because Mr. Anikstein, I don't know if you gentlemen have had it or any of your listeners have had a mom or a dad that was kind of like the honorary dad who told you all the stuff that your dad never did about life and <laughs> birds and bees and all that kind of stuff. And that was Jeremy's dad. And he had these expressions and these sayings and he was just so funny and a big burly guy. And he crack a joke and laugh at his own jokes. And you got a picture of this guy, dude. He looked like an 1890s bodybuilder, shaved head, giant handlebar mustache, huge upper body, <laughs> really skinny through the hips. And legs. He skipped leg day. Guy was a classic. <laughs> yeah, right. He was a classic. Loved that. The guy was, he was, he was a second dad to me. That's awesome. <laughs> so I have to ask, Actually, I'll tell you what, the wife, I'll get this in real quick. Mrs. Anikstein, Jeremy's mom, Jeremy's dad died like in 81, okay, like 40 years ago. His mother's still alive, sharp as a tack, loves the Mets, got the book, called me up. Oh, my God, Georgie read the book. Oh, my God, you're talking about Erwin. So the first thing I said was, I got to get my family, and we got to go visit her. And I told my daughter, I'm like, you're going to meet somebody who's known me since I was nine years old. But that's the kind of reaction the book is bringing yeah. back, the, the yep. people. And that's what it's about. I've had Philly fans enjoy the book. Red Sox fans enjoy the book because now they start thinking about the games they went to. Or maybe yeah. you'll start thinking about the games you went to. Yep. That's the point yep. of the whole mm -hmm. book is, is to remember the people that made your days at the baseball games so special. We were actually at right. it. Um, so 2009, we were actually trying to figure out this, this game prior to talking to you and bringing you on here. But um, – with John and I being Yankee fans, we went to our friend's bachelor party. So this goes back to 2009, and it was still very okay. difficult to get Yankees Red Sox tickets, especially at Fenway. And a friend of yep. ours had won a lottery to get tickets, so we decided to do the bachelor party in Boston, and we go to this Yankees Red Sox game, and I was telling John about it, and I'm like, I have to bring this up in the show because I was like, do you remember when Euclid came on and hit a walk-off home run and blah, 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 we were going on. And then once I started looking it up a little bit to try to recall some more of the memory, I was completely off. Like, I don't, I don't have the memory like you have to recall some of these events. But long story short, the Yankees did end up taking the lead early in the third inning. And, you know, him and I being the only Yankee fans amidst a group of Red Sox fans, we were kind of, you know, busting their stones for a while. And we had to, we had sure. to laugh until... David Ortiz came up and hit a home run in the fifth, and then Pedroia ended up hitting right. a, a like a walk off single, and you know, so oh, we we ate crow on the way yeah, out. Of that stadium, yeah, yeah, we didn't hear the I'm end of it, but <laughs> it just kind of brings up like those memories, like you said, like you you see these tickets or you just remember these events, and it it brings up a lot. Um, you know, I have a I have an entire chapter on my first visit to Fenway, mm -hmm. and the first game was actually a rainout. But we got there, we were waiting and waiting, and it was supposed to be Dennis Eckersley for the Red Sox against Jim Palmer for the Orioles uh, in the summer of 1980. And rain's coming. It's, it's that, that hot, misty, you know, summer rain coming down. <clears throat> and then if you've ever seen the video or you can find it, Rick Dempsey twice at Fenway Park came out and stuffed towels down his shirt. 
and did a whole performance on the field on the tarp <laughs> during the rain delay. And my first visit to Fenway, I got to see the second one where he imitated Yaz and Carlton Fisk. He was doing the belly flops. And they put his picture up on the scoreboard and said, Rick Dempsey, number 24, actor. <laughs> That's awesome. And then I came back in September. And so my first actual going to see the ball game was a game against the Yankees. And it was September of 81. Was it 81? It was 80. Sorry, it was 80. So the Yankees were in first place. And that was the year they ended up losing to Kansas City. But of all the people to pitch for the Yankees in my first game at Fenway Park, it's Louis Tiant. Right, the great Red Sox pitchers, but he pitched. Game goes extra innings. Uh, Yankees win, but I, I went to great pains to try to describe Old Fenway, and and several people commented. I'm not going to give it away, but I did a very descriptive uh, passage on their bathrooms, their men's rooms in particular, because I did not go in the ladies' room. Thank you. It's a, it was a different time. It wasn't acceptable <laughs> like it is today. Uh, but and then I compared it to like going into the Yankee bathrooms. Right. And I can give this one away. You know, after a game, you'd go in and there's like long lines to every stall and you're trying to get in line and you're and gentlemen in the audience, you know, about bladder shyness when you're young. So when you get up there, you, you, this is your moment. Yep. And then sometimes you would go to wash your hands and then you would realize that was not water that was pouring in the sink. And <laughs> just got the hands out. Uh. The bathrooms uh, are like Penn State's, like well, the that, they're trials. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not even trough. a stall, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. that that's what I wanted to ask. Like, it's such an interesting dynamic. You you're a Yankees fan. You've been a light, you're a lifelong Yankees fan, and you work for the Red Sox. It was awesome. So what what's that like? You you just at, every day you went to work, and you yeah, and you're basically on behind enemy lines. So what? Tell I us what's that? What that's like? I looked at myself as a missionary. <laughs> you know but but a strange thing happens when you work for a team you know you you start to get to know people you start and and Bo the thing about boston and including the bruins who i also worked with for 10 years they they still I, again i'm tooting my horn i went to a game up at the garden in, in january the alumni association invited me nice. and i had seen some of these guys in 30 years and they're like well you're part of the family and i'm like i am because you forget because you haven't been there yeah mm -hmm. um you become part of the framework. And the thing about the Bruins and the Red Sox is they're two of the oldest teams in their sports. Mm -hmm. And if you love the Yankees, you're raised on the history. Old Timers Day is thrown at you every summer. Yep. And the history and the videos and babe and pride of the Yankees, which I'll watch anytime it's on. You know, and I'll go, Lou, 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 Garrig, 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 and Uncle Otto Schmato, and all I love all that stuff. Right? It's the same thing in Boston. So I really dove into it. And I had to write stories and, and interview people that would be of interest to New England fans. We weren't just right. in Boston. We were in Rhode Island and all throughout New England. Oh, yeah. And and one of the greatest compliments I got when I was leaving, after I decided to come home, back to Jersey, uh, I'll be minimally uh, colorful expression. We're at the Boston Beer Works across the street. And my buddy, Paul Carroll, who's old time family's Boston Irish, you know, he was our statistician and, we still bicker about baseball and sports to this day. It's awesome. I've been gone near 20-something years. He walks up to me, and he shakes my hand, looks me in the eye, and he goes, you bastard. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you became one of us. And I went, kind of did, didn't I? Yeah, and I did because, you know, I dove into it, and then look what happened. It meant so much to me that when I had a chance to go to a fantasy camp, uh, many years later, where did I go? I went to the Red Sox camp because I knew so many people there. Yeah, And uh, I've become 
sort of this transient fan that, you know, I want the Yankees to win, but if I go to Fenway Park and they're not, Yankees aren't there, I'm putting on a Red Sox t-shirt or a hat. Or if I go to Phillies, I got my old school Phillies hat over there signed by Greg Lazinski. Right. Um, you know, if I go to Baltimore and the Yankees aren't playing, I'll put on an, or- I just want to blend in Chicago, yeah. the Cubs, because when you blend, it's like you're a bit of a spy, but when you're not automatically flaunting another team, right? you're kind of accepted and you can really appreciate the atmosphere and the crowd and the love of the game. And that's what Wrigley was like. I went there once. It was crazy fun. I bet. Uh, Baltimore, well, last summer, I actually, my one big book signing was at the Babe Ruth Museum. So the Yankees were in town. So me and my daughter went in that night and I had my hat on and I did buy some Oriole stuff because I, th- I think it's cool. But, you know, so that's kind of the exception of the rule. Okay, was is is doing the you know kind of rooting for the Yankees when you see the Yankees, but I just like going to the game for the game. I want to experience the individual moment of that game. All right, I'm not worried about. I try not to freak out about the size of the bases or the stupid rules or a Manfred. I just want to take my kids to a Yankee game. I took my son to a Mets game last year. Come, let's. We want to see what it's like out there. Let's go to a Mets game. Mm-hmm. So I bought a Todd Frazier T-shirt on discount because he was gone. I love Todd like ten Frazier. bucks. I had, so I was a Met fan, so to speak, for the day. Yeah, I just enjoy the atmosphere of the park, and I want to I want to get into it and kind of enjoy it as best I can. So you're gonna have to teach John how to do that because he he will not blend into a ballpark that's whatsoever not, at all. That's not He's true. young yet. He'll get around to it. If, <laughs> if they're playing my team, no, I will not. But <laughs> I've well, been to other go. games and go to, like I go to Phillies game and the Yankees and wear and wear a Yankees. Right, hat. right. Red Sox hat. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna. Wear I might a Red split Sox the hat, difference. But, yeah. And like get my team USA hat and put that on and right, just right. sort of just watch the game. So you got you got you're acting like a spy, but that's okay. That's a could be fun. I so I want to go back like. You talk about Fenway is awesome, and I had a great experience at Fenway, and we're talking about atmospheres at the stadium. And, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like I was ever at a crazy Yankees game at the old stadium. Like, I've been to oh. – I, I went to game two of the ALCS when the, with the Who's Your Daddy stuff with Pedro, so I guess there was some oh, nice. stuff. Um, but I don't feel like the new Yankee stadium gets there. I don't feel like no. It's, they, they, it's a, it's a friend of mine calls it a mall park instead of a right, ballpark. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like you're going to Woodbridge Mall and there's a baseball stadium in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now every layer is designed to take money out of your pocket. Now look, they they did the facade and they did the same dimensions, and now they've even eliminated the manual scoreboards post COVID. I don't get that at all. So they try to make it like Yankee Stadium, and you're in the Bronx, and and the the hum in the park is kind of the same, but it's not. The it's same. not. Not at all. Uh, and, and that they didn't even try. I, look, maybe they couldn't renovate it. It was coming apart. I get it. But you can't save some of that. Yep. You couldn't. That, that facade they have at the park next door where the park used to stand, that's not real facade. Right. They right. sold a bunch of stuff. I got two seats from the old place. All right. God knows how many times I probably sat at them over the years. I deserve a piece of that. <laughs> but there's very little there of the old stadium. They got the big eagles that used to be on the on the front of the stadium. Those are on the on the concourse. You can see those. Um, and it's still the pinstripes, but it's it's not the same. Yeah, it doesn't. The atmosphere doesn't feel the same. You don't have the people behind home plate. It seems like it's empty too much. More corporate. You don't have those. Soaring. Well, they're all in the club. Right. They're all in the club. Right. The air conditioning. Yep. yep. Um, the days of me walking up. You know, in 1978, on the first day of ticket sales, and getting four box seats behind home plate for six fifty a piece, over. Now they are six fifty a piece. They're six hundred. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so six dollars and fifty cents. So 
What was that like back then getting tickets? Because we're so used to ticket, Ticketmaster, StubHub. When I read the story about, hey, Jim, what do you got for me today? And he <laughs> pulled out a box, and he had a layer of that toolbox with better tickets underneath it. And right if you knew him, you were getting better tickets. On the inside of his tray. So did you just have to line and up at the stadium to get tickets on the day of the game? No, you will Look, they didn't start selling out really till 98, 99. Oh, okay. If you look at highlights from 96, the upper decks were empty. Right. So okay, you so it was easy. Be part of the walk-up crowd. Uh, but in those days, like early in the season, you either ordered in the mail, like a handwritten letter, what you wanted and a check, or you went there the first day of, of ticket sales. And I wrote about that, getting up at you know, four in the morning and yeah. getting in line at five and waiting until eight and then seeing some guy who was smoking a cigarette or coffee. <laughs> like, what do you want? I'm like, oh, you, got, you got four... Good seats for home plate, the opening day. Yeah, what do you do? And, and then he would slide the four white tickets out, and you're like, bingo. Right. <laughs> but the Hey Jim thing, the story about Hey Jim is the Yankees used to have those ticket booths out in front of the stadium, the kiosk. Right. So a friend of mine, Dave Multer, may he rest in peace, said, uh, he said, hey, this is how you do it. You go to the second booth, first window. There's a guy named Jim. This is so like New York 1979. He's going to wear a fishing hat. He's got kind of always wears a short sleeve shirt. And if you say, hey, Jim, what do you got for me? You'll get the good tickets. Just make sure you tip them. So without giving it away, I remember I had some friends. I told them, they're like, yeah, you're full of crap. I go, walk. I'm 18. I'm full of myself. I'm like, yeah, I got the inside scoop. I know exactly how to get good tickets. And I'm like third in line. And I, and I get up there. And there's the dark window. And there's this guy. And I know it's Jim. And I go, hey, Jim, what do you got for me? And he kind of looks down. I know you. And I'm thinking, oh, man, he's, he's got me figured out, right? I'm not going to tell you what happened. But I will say that, let's just say that Jim became a go-to guy for the rest of my time going on old Yankee Stadium. That's awesome. It was amazing. But that's how you can get tickets. You know, that's how you did it. You either bought them online or you go to Ticket Ticketman, Ticketron at Sears in the basement of Sears in Watchung, New Jersey. And you would get the printed out tickets, the computer tickets. I, I remember, remember the first that. time my dad said, how about we get box seats? I, don't, I couldn't believe he said box seats. I was like 12. <laughs> it was always grandstand underneath, you know? Yeah. And of course, the game we got box seats too got rained out. It was that day. But I still have, is it here? I can't show you anyway because this is audio. I have my three bat day bats. I still have them, nice. including the Ron Woods bat. Ron Woods, baby, number nine. I got my first Little League base hit with my Ron Woods bat, and it's sitting right over there in the corner. That's awesome. That's right great. yellow bat. That's great. So there you go. I will say, though, awesome. I feel like there's just something about being part of the, the old bleacher creatures. Yeah. You know, I mean, paying, like, what, yeah. was it $8 to sit out there, I think? I don't remember. but Dude, in my day, it was like $0.50 cents dollar. Yeah. My father, I refer to him as the uh, past president of the Beat the Traffic Association of America. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and uh, I, used to, I became pretty good friends with Sparky Lyle over the years when he was managing at Somerset. And I told him, like, I'm up on the subway platform, you know, one night or one day. And it's like 1972, whatever it is. It was Lyle's first year with the Yankees. And so he's in there and you hear the radio on the platform. Somebody's got their transistor radio. And Lyle strikes out the game. And holy cow, the game is. I'm like, yay. And I'm like, I missed it because <laughs> I'm on the platform. Right. His dad would park on 14th Street and we would take the subway up to the Bronx. That, okay. that was his way to doing it. <clears throat> and uh, but I did mention uh one of the, the big games I saw was against the Red Sox in 77 during the pennant race in September. And it was a school night. I was a senior. I had two buddies and my dad, I didn't have my license. I was, well, I was a couple of weeks away from getting my driver's license. 
And I guess because it was the pennant race and it was scoreless, my father let us stay. And you can see that the highlight on YouTube, Reggie Jackson blasts a two-run homer off of Reggie Cleveland in the bottom of the ninth. And before that ball hit the bleachers, his hand was on my shoulder and let's go. <laughs> and I'm running down the ramps going, Reggie, man. Get... You know, I, think, I think the line I came up with, we weren't going to beat all the traffic, but we were going to beat most of it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. That's but awesome. I, I was there to see Fred Lynn and Bernie Arbo kind of head towards the wall and then kind of curve back towards the infield. And then it was like the hand came out and let's go. And it was like running down the ramps and everybody's screaming and, you know, so while everybody stayed there and cheered for like 10 minutes, we were on our way out to the 71 Chevy Impala and back to Jersey. That's awesome. Hey, at least you got to see that. At least he I let did. you stay I for did. that. It's like a classic dad moment, though. I know, right? Uh, like, best, let's go. We're dad going. Moment, uh, I'll tell you this. I wrote I wrote a chapter about my one-year-old Chevy Chevette not starting after the playoff game in 1980. Like, it just didn't start. And I'm like, what's going on? And, you know, South Bronx in 1980 – not the place you want to be after hours because there was no Uber. There was no internet. I had to go find a pay phone. The tra- Even if I could, I knew where the trains were going, I'd never get a train back to Jersey at that hour, mm-hmm. okay, because it was like 1130 at night. And I had to call my father, who had probably worked early that morning for Tasty Cake, and I was going to bed. And it's like, yeah, your son's stuck in the Bronx. Can you come get me? <laughs> and... You know, the World War II generation, gentlemen, that might be your grandparents. Well, that's my parents. And, you know, he's got to come all the way to the Bronx at 1230, 1 o'clock in the morning. And I'm begging the, the garage guy to keep it. You better get out of here. We're locking it up. You better come back at the car tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, where am I going to go? It's the South Bronx. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> and without giving it away, um, right before he showed up, something happened. And I had to do this mea culpa. And I thought he was going to kill me. And uh, what what it came down to, without giving the details away, is that literally like 41 years after it happened, as I was writing the chapter, I realized what had really just occurred between (laughs) me and my father, who was not a huggy, I love you, son kind of guy, because that was his generation. And I came to this realization like at 1.45 in the morning while I was typing and I started to tear up. Yeah. Um. It was, it was really cool, but it, it's funny what happened and it's funny why the car didn't start. And I'll leave that to anybody who reads the chapter. Yeah. It's a great, but, yeah. I was an idiot and there you go. So you got to know. <laughs> and, uh, but my dad just without even batting an eyelash, got up, got dressed, got in the car and from Scotch Plains, New Jersey, drove all the way to the South Bronx after midnight to come pick his dumb son up. <laughs> I will say that chapter it was fantastic how you tied it all in together. So definitely. Well, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, yeah. I, I start the story uh, in probably 2011. Right. right so it's right. at that point, it's like 31 years after. And me and my camera guy were driving back from a Yankee game. I'm from a devil's game, a playoff game. And my dad was, you know, near the end and called me up like at 1145. And I'm like, you okay? Cause you see the number on your phone. Yeah. Are you all right? I'm like, yeah, yeah. He goes, oh, I'm coming to get you. I go, what are you talking about? You're coming to get me. He goes, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm coming. I'm like, hey, d- Dad, we sold your car and you can't walk. How are you coming to get me? And then it dawned on me that in his memory, it must have triggered the memory of that night. He must have had a dream. Yeah. And it was so real to him that he picked up the phone and called me. 
to tell me. And when I figured it out, I'll save it for the, for the people who want to read the story. Yeah. But I kind of figured it out and I'm like, are you, you thinking of that game back in 1980, you know? And then I get into the story of, you know, going to the playoff game and Brett's home run. I was able to interview Rick Cerrone. I've known Rick a long time, ironically, a Jersey boy. And where did I meet Rick? When he was with the Red Sox. <laughs> so, um, you know, we became friends up there and we're still pals to this day. And so Rick was able to talk about George Brett and Goose Gossage. So I was able to get some like first person, you know, witness accounts. For the, yeah. For the yeah. Game. But that story is really about my dad, you know, a little field of dreamish, I guess, maybe you want to talk about that. But, uh, but w- w- when you see the realization I came to, hopefully like it triggers things with the guys who read it and maybe even some of the women who read it, who had relationships with their dad. Uh, or, or the mom or whoever, you know, that they, they shared baseball with whatever, whatever team it was. So that was, that was kind of a, a special chapter for me. So, yeah, it was a, it was a good one. It was a very good Thank one. You. And I, I related it back to my grandmother who had passed away recently and I took her to Jeter's last game. And I talked about that on one of the podcasts, like being able to take wow. her and, you know, she was a reason I became a Yankees fan. So reading that, yeah. it kind of, it definitely hit those notes. So very that's good. awesome. I yeah. mean, I became a Yankee fan cause my mother was right. Uh, I referenced her in a book a number of times. And, you know, my best friend, a guy I thought was my best friend when I was a little kid, was a Mets fan. I said, Mom, who did you root for? And she goes, oh, I like the Yankees. I'm like, well, okay, then I'm going to be a Yankee fan. Yeah. And I, I remember writing about it because she said, oh, they won so often it was boring. And I'm like, what's that one? <laughs> you know, for a fan in the seven, early 70s when, you know, second place was like a big year, you know. And yep. so when the Yankees got good in the late 90s, I'm like, I deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> We deserve it again. We need it again. Yeah, we got to get back to this. You know that, but that again, it's the connection. Yes, you know one of the funny things, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this because I'm I'm a big fan of language usage, and especially expressions in sports, tater, long ball, dial nine, all that stuff. Well, if you've watched Pride of the Yankees as many times as I have. And, you know, Walter Walter Brennan's in it, who always was playing in Westerns and stuff. But Walter Brennan, it was funny. He was from Massachusetts. He was playing a cowboy with a Boston accent. It was funny. As you're <laughs> a chance of it. In the movie, they always refer to Yankee Stadium as the Yankee Stadium, right? Well, obviously, we got to get Lou Gehrig to the Yankee Stadium. He's going to play. You know, and it's like the Yankee. I'm like, oh, Lou, we have to go to the Yankee Stadium. I'm like, what the hell is the Yankee? And my mother used to say that. I remembered. She'd go, Oh, so you're going to the Yankee Stadium? I'm like, I'm going to Yankee Stadium. The Yankee Stadium. I'm like, what? That's the way they talked back then. All right? It was the Yankee Stadium. And so every time I see Walter Walter Brennan going, that's right, officer. That's Lou Gehrig. He is getting married, and we're going to try to get him to the Yankee Stadium. And I'm like, oh, like it's the Yankee Stadium. It's perfect. But see, that's the connection. Yeah. My mother used to say that. My mother was at the Polo Grounds on Pearl Harbor Day. Oh, wow. a Giants game. Wow. She said, I didn't even know what Pearl Harbor was. Nobody did. At halftime of the game at the Polo, they asked, the Pacific Fleet has been attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. They're like, Where, where's Pearl Harbor? <laughs> so I have this great connection to old, old wow. Yankees. My Uncle George, who I was named for, was a huge Yankee fan. And I'll give you this little sidebar story. He uh, was going to a school of primarily Jewish kids in, in the city when he was in, in high school. And so during the Jewish holidays in October, a lot of the kids weren't there. So he'd bring his radio to schools into the World Series. And he really wanted to go to the game in 1947. And, and his teacher goes, get out of here. So he runs to the subway, gets in line. And you could literally buy tickets the day of the game. 
you know, a couple of hours beforehand and go sit in the bleachers. So he goes to game seven. Now, if you guys are history buffs or your listeners are history buffs, game six was the famous Aljean Frito catch, right? You've all seen, heard Red Barber go back, 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 back. Uh, caught by Jean Frito. Oh, doctor. <laughs> and, you know, Chris Berman made a living off of that back, back, back for yep. years on ESPN. Yep. But it was Red Barber and it was this backup outfielder named Aljean Frito who robbed Joe DiMaggio of a three-run home run in like the bottom of the seventh of game six, a game the Dodgers won. Yankees would win game seven. And you've all seen the footage of John Frito going back, 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 and he catches the ball and his hat falls off and he throws it. Everybody's like, oh, my God. So years ago, my uncle tells me, he goes, well, I was in the bleachers for game seven. And about two hours before the game, about five Dodgers came out of the dugout and walked out towards the left field bullpen where the Dodgers, you know, the, the old stadium. And one of them was Clyde King, who would later become a Yankee general manager and manager. And one was Al John Frito. So the three or four guys stopped about 60, 70 feet from the wall. And John Frito came out to the warning track and they started to go back and just toss the ball towards the fence. And John Frito would go back and his hat would fall off and make the catch. <laughs> and then he would throw it in and then he would do it again. And then he would do it again. They did it like five or six times. Well, what apparently happened is the newsreels all missed it oh, because they oh, were wow. following DiMaggio. And you remember this, the scene is him kicking the dirt. And it was a big deal because DiMaggio never showed any emotion, right? So everybody was following DiMaggio. So recreating the scene was not uncommon. I asked Ernie Harwell about this with the Tigers. He said, oh, it happened all the time. Really? Right? And here's the proof, gentlemen. The clip is in the in the video for center field by John Fogarty. You can look it up on YouTube when you're done with this. To prove that it's it's fake, there's not one Dodger in the bullpen. Not one. There's two ushers who were doing this, and there are fans of <laughs> the bleachers. You're telling me in the seventh inning of game six, there's not one Dodger in the bullpen? Wow. Wow. It's fake. Wow. <laughs> That's I crazy. Selling that idea That's that my nuts. place in New York, like Vaccaro at the post and some other guys. And nobody, they had no interest in it. I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've got a story that Munson thing, by the way, better one. <clears throat> Maybe I'll send you a clip. I interviewed Tippy Martinez in 2008. I was doing a series for News 12 called Then and Now, where I'd find coaches and stuff that I remembered and we'd tell stories. Well, Tippy was the pitcher who gave up the double to Bobby Mercer in the bottom of the ninth of, of that game on Monday night. You remember that? I'm sure you've seen it on Yes a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Tippy Martinez with a straight face told me, he threw a dedication fastball for Thurman Munson on an 0-2 pitch. The first two pitches are curveballs. Mercer had a hard time hitting Martinez's curve. If you watch the, re the game or the replay, he barely fouls him off. And for some reason, Martinez throws a fastball on 0-2. Mercer lines it for a double. Hmm. I'm like, you did what? He says, well, I felt bad. I couldn't go to the funeral. Tippy was a, a, a former Yankee. He was a prospect. He was part of that big trade in 76. Ten-player swap with the Orioles. And I'm like... I go, does Earl Weaver know that you did this? He goes, he's going to find out now. Earl was still alive. <laughs> he goes, well, I didn't look at it as I was throwing the game. He says, I was trying to just get it outside, but I just looked up and I looked around and I said, you know what, I'm going to throw one fastball for Thurman because I couldn't be at the funeral today. Wow. And Mercer happened to hit it. And I run the clip every year on social media and nobody will touch it. I even offered it to the Yes Network when I got it. No response. Really? Now, to any of you guys... Any of your listeners ever see the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, John Wayne Western with Jimmy Stewart? Black and white classic, 1962. At the end of the movie, there's a scene where Jimmy Stewart 
it started with him as an old man telling a story and it ends with him telling the story about this drama that unfolded in the old west and at the end of his story he tells the truth about who really shot the bad guy and the editor of the newspaper and the reporter he takes the pen and he rips the story up and he throws it in the pot belly stove and jimmy stewart says well uh, uh, mr editor you're not you're, you're not going to use story and the guy i don't know who the character actor is but he just goes this is the west senator when the because when the legend becomes fact print the legend <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to take away from Bobby Mercer's heroic game and the five RBIs and the game-winning hit. But the fact was, Tippy has a straight face and told me in 2008 that he threw a dedication fastball on 0-2, got too much at the plate, and that's why Mercer threw the double. That's wow. crazy. That's insane. Unbelievable. Yeah. But nobody wants to <laughs> and hear And nobody that. wants to. Right. Right. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. That's <laughs> That's how we go, and that, I think that's that's the way they kept it. And you know what? Good for them. That's their that's their legacy, and they want to protect that. That's cool. I get it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's awesome. So one, let me let me get to this point because this has been a question that I've been wanting to talk about. Um, in the book, you mentioned about being a real fan and what it means <laughs> to be a real fan. So, I mean, I'm going to give you two words, and I want You're you to sound off fan. and let us know what you think. Okay. Doyle Alexander. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he got way too much ink in that book, didn't he? Yeah, he had a lot in there. Yeah. Well, you know, for somebody Doyle you don't Alexander, like, <laughs> let's, let's start. Let's start with. You guys are killing me. Um, <laughs> let's start with the fact that Doyle Alexander had a very long and fairly successful major league career, and the Yankees acquired him in that big deal. This is dovetailed perfectly with that big deal with the Orioles in 76 and he was a really good pitcher down the stretch uh, I, don't, I don't know how many games he won that year for the yankees but he actually started game one of the world series uh against the reds and of course nobody was beating the reds those years right and he lost game one and then he you know he cashed in on on his pivot winning year with the yankees and he ended up signing i think with the braves he's traded to the giants he's bouncing around and then in 82 coming off the world series that they lost excuse me to los angeles after going up two nothing um, they reacquire Doyle right before the season starts. And you're like, okay, good. And, you know, he was okay. And then he pitched, it was early May of 82. He was the starting pitcher the night Gaylord Perry won his 300th game in Seattle. I think it was a Friday night. And I believe it was our boy Rick Cerrone who had made an error in an inning and like the, I don't know how many runs the, the Mariners put across. But Doyle was so pissed off when he got, and how many pitchers still do this? With his right hand, he punches the dugout. <laughs> what happens when you punch with your pitching hand? You break it. What are you doing? Right? Well, the whole season, 82, was a disaster. And Doyle was part of it because he, he can't pitch till July, whatever. Well, he comes back, and he's giving up home runs like it's ball day at the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> like literally I remember a writer saying the most dangerous place to be was the outfield because that's where all his pitches land. <laughs> and he had, you know, game after game where he just got lit up and you'd watch him and he had kind of, I, I don't mean to pick on Doyle, but he had kind of this like dopey face and it was like, he never showed any emotion and it was like, don't you even care? <laughs> you know, you're trying to say to yourself, I, 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 he's a Yankee. I got to support him. And I was a real fan because real fans don't boo their hero. They don't boo the team. And I had some bad teams, and I was appreciative of the good teams, okay? So you're not going to boo anybody because, yeah, the guys are trying their best. So if they have a bad season, or, but every freaking game, he would come out and he would get shot. 
And I was like, oh, three more home runs today. Two more today. <laughs> so my buddy Charlie, God love him, he has nicknames for everybody he doesn't like. So Doyle Alexander became Doyle the Dipstick. That was his, his <laughs> He still refers to it today. So fast forward to September of, 2000, of 1982. They are playing the Milwaukee Brewers who are on their way to the American League pennant. If you, you guys may be a little too young, some of your older listeners, Harvey's Wallbangers, Gorman Thomas, Cecil Cooper, um, who the hell else? Uh, ben Ogilvy, you know, Ted Simmons. These guys raked all year long. And Doyle's pitching. And, and I'm on the Sunday plan. We go to the game. And I think it might have been the second or third. He got like through two minutes. I got the scorecard sitting over here someplace. I could just pull it up and look at it. <laughs> So up comes Cecil Cooper with two guys on base. Boom! Right? Rocket into the freaking bleachers or something for three runs. And we're like, oh, oh, here we go. Doyle. Doyle the dipstick. Okay? <laughs> Dope Doyle. Now batting Ted Simmons. Boom! Lower deck. Now it's back-to-back homers. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know, right? Yep. Referred to Andrew Haney in the book, right? <laughs> we saw that dude give up home runs to four batters and four homers and six batters that, that day against the Orioles in, in 21. Carl Pavano. Yeah. Oh, another one. But Haney, he was Doyle the dipstick reborn from the left side. <laughs> he literally gave up. He gave up four homers in six hitters to the last place Orioles in the game we were in. <laughs> How about him? Ben Ogilvy. <laughs> Rockets it into the upper deck. <laughs> I've never seen three straight home runs. In the game. <laughs> How many of you guys have seen the Christmas story? People listening, right? Remember when Ralphie like loses it against Scott Farkas? Yeah, yeah. Like he yeah. snaps, and you're laughing because you know I lost it. <laughs> and my girlfriend's at the game, sitting there with me and Dave and Charlie, and stuff. I start going, boo! <laughs> Like he was going to hear me while they were taking him out of the game. It's five months. And I go back to my seat and I'm totally exhausted. <laughs> I just sat down. And there's a great, I'm a big movie guy. So Alec Guinness has a line in the bridge on the river Kwai. What have I done? And that's what I'm thinking. Oh no. Like I, I'm not, I'm no longer a truth. Right? <laughs> came to the dark side. Well, as it happened, Yankees actually came back and won that game. Very dramatic. But about three weeks later, we come back for the last game of the season. It's against the Red Sox. Now, at the beginning of the season, you're like, Red Sox, October, coming off a World Series. This is going to be big. It was not. Yankees were like fourth place. The Red Sox were in third. Who's starting for the Doyle Alex? You're going to send me to the winner with Doyle Alex. (laughs) (laughs) And he gets the first guy out. Okay. Trying to keep it together. Next batter, Dwight Evans. Deep to right. Home run. (laughs) (laughs) Now now batting, Tim Rice. Deep to right center. (laughs) Five, last five hitters 
I saw him face in 82, the last six hitters, five of them hit home runs. Oh, jeez. And now we're screaming at him again and yelling at him again. Get me a bat. Let me. And ironically, the next spring, May, I graduate from college and a bunch of us go to Memorial Day. Who's pitching? They brought him back. And he gets bombed by like Dwayne Murphy, the A's or something. And <laughs> scream. It's over. Like the true fanhood is it's done. I'm not a true fan anymore. I turn in my card. It's over. And he disappeared into the Yankee dugout, never to be seen in pinstripes again. And if you know the history of it, he was signed with Toronto about a month later, lost like five or six more in a row. And then he won like eight in a row. And in 85, who eliminated the Yankees on the second to last day of the season in Toronto? Doyle what? F. and Alexander. <laughs> Bill's actually he, a Blue Jays fan. looking at me on the camera. Where's Falkowski? I know he's watching the game. Yeah. Oh. It, was, it was just like, oh. But it, it wasn't so much that he sucked. It's that he looked like he didn't care that he sucked. That's the worst, isn't it? He's a player that shows no emotion. Oh, yeah. Obano was like that, Yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And and I hate that. Like, I mentioned, like, Dale Murray's in the book. We called him Gas Can. That was his nickname. They traded Fred McGriff for Dale Murray. <laughs> 493 home runs for Gas Can Murray. <laughs> and he would give up every every game, three hits, four hits. And then he would walk off like, you know, okay, whatever. I'm like, you know, show me you care. Yep. So, yeah, Doyle. So, thank you for ruining my night by bringing up Doyle. I thought it was going to be a friendly conversation. About the- <laughs> I mean, up, up until his point. And we got to go to the Doyle Alexander yeah. well. but We have to turn it down uh, at yeah, some point. He was, he was, and by the way, in 76, there's a chapter in the book where that was the closest I ever came to seeing a no-hitter, where he almost no-hit the Red Sox in August of 76. And so I was all about Doyle Alexander, and I was all about <laughs> them bringing Doyle Alexander back. And then, oh, to this day, so you, as you can tell, I, I've gotten over it. A little bit. Yeah, clearly. A little bit. <laughs> but uh, thank you for bringing that up. Sorry. So, but, so it was funny in the book. I, it, it's, it's, yeah, it was, absolutely. It was, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny now. And But you remember how you're like, I can't boo a Yankee because I'm a true fan. Like some idiot on Twitter is going to, you're not a true fan. Oh, really? For, you're the arbiter. So let what a, Everybody's arbiter Joey, on Twitter. Joey and Peacock knows what a true fan is. Yeah, right. Tell me you're not. Since we're on that this subject of of being a real fan and booing your own players and whatnot, last season at the end of last season, after the season that Aaron Judge had, do you think it's fair that the fans booed him in the playoffs for his performance? They were not booing Aaron Judge. They were booing the fact that the team wasn't playing well. Okay, and I think Aaron Judge understands that better than anybody. If you if you take the money and you put on the uniform, um. You know you're gonna you're gonna take heat if things don't go well. And uh, to, to give you a, a media example, I had a lot of uh, news directors who were not from New Jersey. And you're trying to explain how like it works. Like we're part of New York. It's okay that the job we can cover the Giants because it's part of the thing. And I would try to explain that as a sportscaster. And I tried to be like the the guy you enjoyed games with. And compliments I received from my on-air work and stuff like you're the same guy on the air that you are in person. And I always appreciated that because I don't want to put on a, hey, everybody, it's time for sports with George. I'm not going to play that. <laughs> and my theory, and I think we all know this in New York or New Jersey, is that when the team does well, pick a team, Pets, Devils, Giants, Jets, Mets, Yankees, when they play well, we fly the flag. We wave that pennant high. Mm-hmm. But when they lose, when they're playing poorly, we're right there calling it out. Mm-hmm. That's just the way we are. Yeah. you know. And, and I think Aaron Judge is smart enough to know that none of that was personal. They were right. booing Aaron Judge. They were frustrated that he wasn't hitting, and the whole team 
full-on party game. I think it was yeah. more of a, a reaction to the team playing like crap against the Astros again. Again, yep. Because they keep swinging with the, with the, with the friggin', you know, with, with the... Uh, Let's just hit home runs all day. Yeah, yeah. the, the oh. angle. And every year in the playoffs, you sit there and go, any team with a brain is going to throw high fastballs mm-hmm. under the sw- over the swing. They can't hit it, or if they do, they're going to pop it up or fly out. They're going to do breaking balls low and away. And every year, it's the same thing. And the Astros have done it to them four times in different ways. And it's if you it probably happened again. But so they had Rizzo and they had um, Benintendi and they had Lemayhew and, and all those guys were hurt. So the contact yeah. guys weren't even playing. Yep. Yeah. Now, one day they're going to realize the launch angle does not work. I hate analytics uh, in baseball. The bonk, which is why I love Volpe. When he when he finally gets here, if he gets here, dude puts the bat in play. Yeah. He's got speed. Knows how to play. It's the game that I grew up on, and that I assume. Yeah, I think you have a Doyle good point. Boys, I'm going, man. I'm just, I need a minute. No. <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple questions that we've just been asking everybody that's been on yep. the show, so we can kind of wrap it up with these. We won't keep you much longer. But I think this kind of ties into that a little bit. So so you have a time machine, and you could go back to any event that you've been to in your life. I have a time machine? Yeah, which one are you going to? Uh, October 2nd, 1978, Fenway Park. Bucky Dent game. Ah, yeah. You were there? I, no. Oh, that's, that's where you would go. go okay. See. That's a game I want to see in person. Got you. That's, I have that game on, on my DVR. I have it on DVD. I have the Red Sox broadcast that I was able to copy when I worked up there. And every time Carl Yastrzemski comes up in the bottom of the ninth against Gossage, you're like, he's finally got to get a hit. Like, right. He's got to get a beat. And, and my reaction that day and even all these years later when I watch the game now, when he pops it up, my first reaction is, that's way too easy. Yeah, he, he, it's got to be a line drive to like the, the triangle at Fenway with Paul Blair running and, and reaching high to grab it and, and save the day. A pop up to third, Yastrzemski, forget it. But that's what happened. Did you when you went to Boston to work for the first time? Did you wear a Bucky Dent jersey just to? <laughs> no, I mean the first time I went to games there, I wore a hat. Right. You know? uh, but I was the cool fan that was like, "Hey, everybody!" <laughs> you know, you're trying to be nice because you don't want to get beat up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they knew I was a Yankee fan. You know, it was kind of funny that people didn't trust me right away. But like I said, I earned their trust and, and yeah. stuff. But uh, I'm working on book number two. Oh, nice. This is going to cover my early years in hockey with Stan Fischler and then my 10 years in Boston. And the opening quote is going to be from my former boss, Bob Whitelaw, who knew I was a Yankee fan. He was our director of operations. He would direct games sometimes. And one day I'm in his office and he says, George, it's time you understand. You root for the team whose logo is on your paycheck. <laughs> we can go another two shows on that alone. Hey, well, that's what I think. Yeah. That's if you I, ever want to come back on, please. Yeah, well, we're absolutely. This was great. Yes, definitely. Here I am, fellas. Awesome. Anytime. Uh, I, I think what you guys are doing with this, keeping the fire alive for uh, the ticket stubs and even recreating new ones, I think it's fabulous. Thank you. Because and if George, anybody man, it's been, uh... cares about the website and see some other stuff that I've done, uh, that's yo-georgetv.com. Absolutely. And if you want the book, I, I would be great. It's on Amazon. It's fourteen ninety five. It's updated uh, with some new stories at the end. Uh, but it, again, going back to the beginning, it, it's 32 stories that were inspired by my old Yankees ticket stubs. Yep. And it's, it's just as much about the Yankees of the late seventies and mid eighties as it is about the people I went with my dad, my friends, good dates, bad dates. The Cheryl chapter is still epic. Her mother, by the way, by my first girlfriend, I, I told the story of trying to get her to a game 
because I knew at 16, if she liked the Yankees, we would get married. <laughs> That's the way you think when you're 16. Yep. And I concocted this great scam to get her to the ballpark. I did the seating just so, so everything would be perfect. And let's just say it didn't work. Okay. But her mother reviewed my book and gave me high grades on it. Awesome. Thank That's you. awesome, man. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Highly, highly <laughs> recommend all of our listeners to go check out that book. It's fantastic. For it's as great. many stories as you've told tonight, there's literally like 25 more. Or so, it's and great. and we've also found out that there's a book number two on the way. So we're all looking it's, forward yes, to it, it and it's, very I'm, excited I'm, for I've this. I've written about like 14 or 15 chapters, and what happens is when I get inspired by something I see on TV, whether it's hockey related or baseball related. I'll write the story. And so I, I did a, I just, I got sentimental about Dave Henderson and had to write about our relationship. And when he came back with the A's and how funny that was, how he was, because I was the only guy to talk to him in 87 when he was off, he was just forgotten, even hitting the home runs and, and, and winning the help and win the, the playoffs against California, nearly winning the world series against the Mets. If they had won that game, there would be a statue of Dave Henderson at Fenway park. And the next year he was a forgotten man. And so the funny part of the story is he comes back with the A's. He's going to be an all-star. Everybody's waiting for him, and he blows them all off and comes does the interview with me, pissing everybody off in the Boston media because I was nice to him. And I'm like, dude, you can go. So he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, we're good. That's awesome. Nice. Because they can wait. I'm like, that's awesome. Can do, my man. Yeah, right. So wow. and that's really what the games the games are about, guys. It's people. It, yeah. It's it's yep. you know, and the fact that I got to know a lot of these people. And I'm still friends with like Cerrone. Uh, I'm, I'm name dropping now. Spike Owen is still a great friend. Um, Frank Viola, you know, uh, if you if you look at the video, if if you go to the website and and look at my video about Red Sox fantasy camp, Frank is busting my chops about the stirrups. He's in there, uh, but it's cool the relationships you build and and again, it's a little self appreciation. You deserve uh, it. Comment. Though, yeah. But when you go back and you and you see people you worked with years and years ago and they're happy to see you, yep. that means you did a good job. You took care of business. And and hopefully the people Absolutely. you've worked with, the people you're affecting, you know, in 15 or 20 years and say, remember these these type of things that you guys did. And that's doesn't pay my bills. I could use the help, right? But uh it's it's a it's a really cool satisfaction. And if I could put that in print and and give and get some people to jigger some memories about the games that you went to as a kid or the time you brought a girl and she dumped you for some college guys in right field or whatever, whatever happened or, or, you know, anything. Um, then the book's done its job. I want, I want you to dust off the memories and appreciate the game and the people you shared it with. That's, I think that's the goal of the, the book. So, and thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah. George, thank, thank you, you for being so on much. the show, man. Yeah, seriously. We really appreciate this. And again, the book is cool. meet me at the bat. You guys can pick it up on Amazon and, we really look forward to uh, book number two, man. And hopefully we get, get you, you know, back down the road someday. We get you back on here to talk some more because this has been fantastic. Oh, well, you know, if you want to talk some, you know, Red Sox, Yankees, um, you know, I, I've covered football and all kinds of stuff. But when it comes to ticket stubs, you know, I had all those stubs. I, I had Metro Stars ticket stubs from the 90s, but I had Cosmo stubs from the 70s. For quite a while. <laughs> wow. Love it. And, and and that's the point for people who are just discovering your website and what you guys are trying to do and offer. Every ticket stub is a portal to a moment in your life. That's why they matter. That's why I wish teams still made hard tickets available. Some teams will print them out for you. There aren't a lot left, but if I can get them, I'm going to get yeah, them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, ticket stubs really mean a lot, and for those who understand that, that's a gift that, you know, keeps on giving because you can just look at them and remember a 
a face, a person, a love, a person you didn't like, anything funny, bad, sad. It's in this little like three inch ticket stub. That's the beauty of it. So way to go, fellas. I appreciate you doing it. Appreciate that. Well, we'll see everyone uh, next week. We, uh, yeah. Thanks for bringing yeah. up Doyle Alexander. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He and that's sucked. A wrap. Oh, sorry. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> thanks, George. Buy the book. All right, that's boys. Great. Thank you, George. Thank you, boys. All right, you too. Thank you. Yeah.